When I was a kid, I really loved DVD extras. Specifically, I liked watching the bloopers. So when we were talking about doing a bonus episode for Magnificent Jerk, we thought the perfect idea would be our very own DVD extras. And while we don't have a blooper reel for you, we do have something even better. We're taking you behind the scenes. And I'm here with James Kim, my fellow executive producer of Magnificent Jerk. He's also the one who directed all of the amazing fiction for the show. Hey, that's me. Hello. Hi, James. On this episode, I'm going to hand over hosting duties to one of our amazing producers, Melissa Akiko Slaughter, who has been there with us from the beginning. Hi, guys. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for having me. What's up, Melissa? <laughs> yeah, she like joined about two years ago. It might be more now. And um, I just remember I was immediately stoked that she came on board. Like I was just feeding off uh, her energy and excitement for this show because Melissa, she was somebody who was really yearning to tell this kind of story, um, specifically Asians in Hollywood. Yeah. I came in January, I believe, 2022. Oh, wow. So even though we've been on this for like a year and a half, so close to two years, there are still a bunch of questions I have for you guys about this show that I haven't gotten a chance to ask. So yeah, are you guys let's ready? Let's do it. I love not being the host. <laughs> <laughs> let's get started. Okay. I'm Maya Lynn Sugarman. And I'm James Kim. And this is Magnificent Jerk, the true story of a fake story about a real life. Melissa, I am passing the baton off to you. Episode 8, DVD Extras. Let's do it. Our first DVD bonus feature, we are calling this segment Origin Stories. Maya, we heard in episode one how you came across the script for It's All in the Game, uh, but I think people might be interested in knowing how you decided to make this story a podcast and then how James got involved. Yeah, actually, the first week after I read my uncle's script back in December 2020, I made a Google Doc that was called Uncle Galen Radio Feature Draft One. <laughs> And then a few weeks later, James and I actually ran into each other at a picnic. Yeah. And somehow the topic of whitewashing in Hollywood came up. And I remember Maya got so excited and like jumped up. Well, not literally, but she just like she she kind of took over and said, um, oh, my God, guys, I have a whitewashing story for you. And I think like maybe a week after that, you came over and we started talking about it like more seriously yeah yeah i just said maya just tell me like what the story is and we're just gonna record it and i think it was like a two hour long conversation so, yeah, yeah yeah and that's after that we're like okay i think there's something here yeah so then james what did you hear in maya's story that made you think oh this is a podcast i mean this story at least when maya was telling it to me it just touched on so many things there were parts of california history that i had no idea existed or happened. This story talked about the ins and outs of Hollywood, specifically with Asian Americans. And we actually got to go in depth with it because of how involved Galen was. And, you know, as someone who makes fiction podcasts, I just got really excited when Maya was like, I also want to bring Galen's screenplay to life. But I remember like, thinking, okay, this is a really interesting story, but I don't know where it's going, until Maya played a tape of her um, Aunt Esther on a phone call. 
And Esther starts to cry because she's she's starting to reflect about like the death that's happening in their family. And um, there's this concept that she was talking about with the three bowels, right, Maya? Yeah, she was just saying how usually we always bow youngest to oldest. So I usually go first, then my cousins, then my aunts, and then Papa used to be the one to bow last um, at my grandfather's grave. But after my Papa died, Auntie Esther was now the last person to bow. And there's something about Maya when you're telling me about like what you've gone through and that's kind of when everything starts to click. Like, oh, there's like something much deeper here. Was there a moment in the beginning of reporting where either of you were like, oh, this is actually a way bigger story than I initially thought? Yeah, you know, I think it was maybe when we started to report on Galen's backstory and just the stuff in the 70s and 80s and trying to figure out what's real and what's not in the script. I feel like for me, it was when I found Anna, who was the love interest and it's all in the game. That's when I started to realize, oh my God, there's so much more here. Like this show is very much about my uncle Galen, but it led us to so many other stories that were so interesting. And like, I never would have reached these people otherwise. Speaking of other stories, that takes us to our next DVD bonus feature, Deleted Scenes. This is the stuff we recorded but ultimately didn't make it to the show. We had, I think, like 30 interviews in the bank. We were cutting things in and out up until the last minute. And so we wanted to talk about the things that hit the proverbial cutting room floor. There, there was a lot. I was looking at our list of interviews the other day, and I was like, oh, my God, I completely forgot about some of these people. Yeah. My personal favorite untold story is from Gregory Yee Mark, who was featured in episode two. Maya, can you tell us a little bit more about finding Gregory? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because when we reached out to Gregory, he's a academic, and he actually wrote a paper about the Soy Sing Boys because he spent time back in the day, like, hanging out with the Soy Sing Boys and interviewed them and wrote them into this academic paper But then he, yeah, he really was the interview that kept on giving because then we found out, oh, he's not just an academic. He actually was friends with this guy, Tom Tom. Oh, not only that, Tom Tom had a nickname and it was Crazy Six. Um, And then not only that, he is related to this like big part of Asian American cinema history. Gregory told us how his great aunt, Marion E. Wong, became a filmmaker and filmed one of the first ever Asian-American films when she was just 19 years old, and it was filmed in 1915. Maya even said they filmed it in Oakland in his grandparents' backyard, so that's another Oakland connection. It was crazy talking with Gregory because we kind of separated our interviews into like, okay, these are our Oakland people, these are our Hollywood people. So I totally didn't expect that one of the, you know, quote-unquote, Oakland people would have this historic Hollywood story. And it was called The Curse of Guangdong. And the star of the film was my grandmother. So it's somewhat of a love story with a China backdrop. My Aunt Marion and my great-grandmother went to New York to try to you know, develop a market for it, but it failed. So within my family, it's considered to have been a failure. But then those of us today think, what a pioneering effort. The first Asian-American film, and it was done by a Chinese-American woman, and almost all the actors were women. 
it was way ahead of its time. Maya, I'm curious if there are interview moments or just people, characters who you really loved that didn't make it to the final edit. I mean, the most heartbreaking person would have to be Brian. Um, We interviewed one of Galen's longtime best friends, Brian Wong. Brian grew up in Oakland. His parents owned a gas station down the street from where my family grew up. And he used to be drug buddies with Galen, and he was with him when Galen was trying to decide, should I go to L.A.? What if, you know, I don't find what I'm looking for? Did I ever tell you that Galen saved my life one time? We smoked a joint and everything, and then you get tired, so okay, we crashed. I fell asleep with a cigarette in my mouth. I was asleep there and high and asleep, and Galen said, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. I go, what? I said, look, you know, my pillow's on fire. So I took the pillow, I threw it out the window, so is it, you know, he's, he saved my life. Brian, when you meet him, he's like so inviting and warm. And uh, I feel like this is not the right word, but I don't have any other ones, but like jolly. Like there's like an innocence to him. Like a, And to have those kinds of stories come out of him, you're like, what kind of life did you live? Yeah, there was this one story we really wanted to include. And it was about how Brian and Galen actually first met. So Brian was working at his family's gas station one day, and the Soy Sing boys showed up, and they tried to start this big fight. One guy I remember, his name was Sookie. They gave him a cleaver. He chased me right around the station, through the winning room, outside to the garage, and then my brother gave me this four-foot tire iron. Okay, you know, here, four-foot tire iron versus a cleaver? I'll take my chances, you know? You know, come on, you know, I'm ready. And they, they all scattered. But, you know, Galen was there. But after that, after that, we didn't have any more trouble. And Galen started coming around the station, you know. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, you know, at this point, I, I don't have any, any beef with him. So Brian, he mentioned up top this guy, Sookie Lore. And, like, in the room when we're interviewing Brian, we actually just Googled him because we're just like, this guy sounds so familiar. And then we found him easily because he is a well-known hairdresser. And then we, when we tracked him down, we found out that he's also an international TJ, which is insane. <laughs> yeah, and he lives in Shanghai. We did record an interview with him, but the audio quality was pretty bad, so we couldn't use it. But when I talked to him, I asked him about this story. Actually, I think I played him the tape, and he was like, oh, yeah, I remember that day. And he was like, yeah, you know, I feel kind of bad about it. Like, I really intentionally tried to miss Like, I wasn't actually going to hit him with the cleaver. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Didn't you, like, also – you guys talked about – like, he was really – they were, like, into fashion, right? Like, Suki was, like, somebody in that group of of the Sui Sing who, like, loved fashion. Yeah. The Sui Sing guys, people made fun of them, I guess, at the time because they said they dressed like women. But Suki said they would go to vintage shops and specifically buy 1930s women's clothes because it fit their – frame very well. And then he also told me how he had this pair of boots where the heel was clear and you pu- you put a goldfish inside of it. Oh my god. And then when the goldfish dies, you just replace it. That's so <laughs> wild. You know, the I, things the things you do for fashion. I just like imagine Suki running around a tire shop with a cleaver, like dressed like Willy Wonka, like the Johnny Depp one with the top hat. <laughs> and his bangs are just flopping everywhere, looking all nice and immaculate. <laughs>
Bonus extra number three. This is the director's commentary section, and we're going to talk about the format of this podcast because we did something a little different. We fully produced uh, fiction scenes and recreations. Uh, so first, Tamaya, how did you originally think you would be using Galen's script in this piece, it, which is really at its heart like a documentary? I had a very ambitious goal when I first came up with this idea, like, you know, the week I discovered the script, which was like, I'm going to make this entire movie again. <laughs> <laughs> All 120 pages. Um to me, like the fiction and the nonfiction parts of the show all speak to each other and are key to telling the documentary story. Because to me, I always thought of the fiction as maybe these are your words, James, as like reading from his diary. Like, yes, it is in the format of an action movie, but like it very much is his reflection on his own life. James, how did you think about the different ways to use the fiction and reenactments throughout the show? Yeah, this the show does a lot of fiction and reenactments. Uh, the whole overarching idea for this, um, the story and this podcast and what got me excited was that it lacked a lot of actual tape of Galen, uh, which normally is a red flag for a podcast. But when we found like his screenplays and then on top of it, like printed words, you know, like interviews that Galen did or transcripts from his attempted extortion or the court hearings, we kind of grouped all of this together and said, wait, wait, wait. Not only are we going to bring the screenplays to life, we're going to bring the actual words that he said when he was attempting to extort a teenager and their family. And even in like an interview setting, when he was giving an interview to Elisa Lee in the Asian Week article in the 90s. And so our approach was for the screenplay, we, we want to use different kind of microphones to make it sound like a film to really make people feel like they're immersed into Galen's words because our whole goal was let's try to bring Galen's vision, original vision to life with a screenplay. And then when it came to the reenactment side of things with the interviews and transcripts of the court hearings and extortions, those elements were like, let's try to hire actors, but then make it sound as realistic as possible. Where there's like a Tom Wolf interview where he's interviewing Tom Tom, where like, in that interview, Tom Wolf was actually interviewing him at a bar. And let's imagine us putting a recorder at a table at kind of a noisy bar, and, and Tom Tom and Tom Wolf are sitting on opposite sides of each other. Same thing with the Asian Week article, same thing with the transcripts for all the things. And the main reason for all of that and why we went all out for the fiction was because we wanted to bring Galen to life and also highlight that Galen had a lot of sides. When he was extorting that teenager, he was a different version than when he was doing an interview at, in Asian Week. And then the character that he wrote, Billy, in, in It's All in the Game of the Screenplay, that's also a different side of, of Galen. Even though you know it's fiction, he put himself in there. So every single sort of fiction element and recreation, we just thought of it as like showing the different faces of Galen. With that in mind, let's listen to a couple of the scenes that y'all made. Uh, this first scene from It's All in the Game hasn't even been heard on the podcast yet because y'all recorded a bunch of scenes from the screenplay that we were going to play around with, and not all of them made it to the final episodes, including this one. So this is the first time that we meet Crazy Six. Let's give it a listen. Exterior, Marina District, Night. Billy sees a car pull up behind him. Crazy Six, mid-30s, foreign-born Chinese, very small, but not to be messed with, 
exits the car with four lackeys in tow. You guys are late. We got lost. If you give us a fucking address earlier, we'd be on time. If I gave you the address earlier, you would have moved in on my sting. Here's the plan. Two of you go with Jimmy, the rest of us take down the front. Little guns, cover outside. Big guns, go in first. Crazy Six walks up to Billy's car. He pulls Esmeralda out of the car. Crazy Six puts a gun to her head. Oh, no witness. Die, bitch. This ain't your deal. Let her go. It's kind of a Chinese standoff. Crazy Six loosens up. This your deal. But if anything come back on me, I look for you. Crazy Six gets back in his car. Billy is nervous. What's wrong? You scared of the way I drive? Kill <laughs> So I remember when you guys were recording that, you were at the hobby shop in L.A. And Maya, you got actively involved in this particular scene. <laughs> Would you like to tell us how? Oh, yeah. I, ha- I had to play the the woman that Crazy Six was being creepy to. Oh, yeah. Did he like he like grabs her? He like pulls her out of the car. Yeah. Pulls her out of the car and points a gun to her head. Yeah. So James just told me to breathe. Yeah. Heavily. There was no lines in the script, but you yeah. know, for audio, it's like, how do you make that person present? So we needed somebody. And I was like, Maya, <laughs> like you have to go and play Esmeralda. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was fun, you know, we had like to do a little blocking for it too. And, you know, so that was fun. I mean, God, all of those actors were so good. They're pretty awesome. Yeah. Like Hobby Shop is like, it's basically a a large recording space and they cleared it all out. And one of our engineers on the show, Marina, she like set everything up the day before and like we used a ton of mics, but our whole thing was like, let's have all the actors move in this space because we really want it to affect the performance. And especially like, what would it sound like if someone is getting pulled and they're being held at gunpoint? Like, how does that sound if you actually did those things? It was this kind of beautiful thing where all these actors are into it and being really physical. So when the script says like, you know, Crazy Six pulls Esmeralda out of the car and um, points a gun to her head, like the actor playing Crazy Six, um, Patrick, he grabbed Maya and like I, we were just like just go for it and Maya's like yeah that's fine yeah. like right yeah I think he just grabbed my he grabbed my wrist that was like our our like symbol yes. um yeah that's yeah, right yeah, yeah, to yeah. Be, yeah to make it safe and trusting but yes, still yeah try no, to yeah. bring it in the next scene I want to focus on might seem like a really small scene but it was I I think so cool and really memorable to me at least it's a scene that's not in It's All in the Game, but it's in another one of Galen's scripts called Keep Your Head to the Sky. And we used this particular scene in episode six to highlight how Galen was writing about his relationship with his own mother in his different screenplays. And something that listeners wouldn't know is that in a lot of Galen's scripts, there's whole chunks of dialogue that are meant to be spoken in Chinese. Because y'all were so specific about casting, we actually had someone in the audition like send back the whole scene in Cantonese. And so on the day, we did a couple of takes in English, but then we also did a couple of takes in Canto. And our actors were kind of just able to do it on the spot. It was really incredible. 
And we wanted to play a little bit of that for y'all now. Wow, I didn't know that. I haven't heard this. Oh, I yeah, had no idea heard. about this. Oh my God. I was wondering if if we could all maybe spend some time together. Ma, I know I've caused you a lot of pain. I want to start all over again. Be a part of the family. Is that how you really feel? Wow. It, it feels so real to how, like, I feel like I've seen, like, my mom and my aunts and probably my uncle did, too, like, speak with my papa because she would speak in Cantonese and they would speak maybe like part English, part Cantonese. So that feels so real to what that conversation probably did actually sound like. Yeah. For us, like our rule of thumb uh, when making these sort of decisions of like, should we stick to the script and make it in the language that Galen wants or should we make it English? The guiding principle was like, well, we want to make sure that the audience hears the words that Galen wants. And so for Bobby's mom's role, those lines, when heard in English, they're they're actually really important um, because it shows a dynamic between Bobby and his mom. And in the show, we're trying to prove that Galen was really trying to put his relationship with his mom on the page and hopefully on the screen. And the best way to do that was just to hear how he would write um, dialogue if Papa were to actually say it. I also feel like we were able to do that because you guys were very specific on how you wanted casting to go. So can you uh, tell me a little bit about your philosophy behind the casting on this show? So the main thing for us was we just wanted to be as authentic as possible to Galen's vision. Uh, because for us, the point of the show was to highlight the things that he personally wrote and and how Hollywood took control of it and, and they didn't really allow him to see his vision fully. And so for us, we didn't want to replicate what Hollywood was doing. If we were going to take Galen's words, it wasn't just the words that we had to honor, but it, it was the entire vision of what he was trying to do. Obviously, we couldn't ask Galen what that was, but like through all the reporting and talking to a lot of people, we can kind of infer like, okay, like these are the types of people he wanted to, to play these characters, this is most likely what Crazy Six possibly sounded like. And that's kind of where we drove our casting decisions. And one of the most important things was keeping authentic to the, you know, the ethnic background and makeup of like the people playing those roles. Um, we didn't want to step into the same sort of tropes that Galen was very aggressively like against in Hollywood. And, and to be authentic, we had to go from like pretty much like every single step. Maya, what do you think Galen would have felt about this version of It's All in the Game? I don't know. I feel like the whole time in my head, I was like, he would probably be like, I wouldn't do it this way. I have a specific vision. <laughs> no, I think he would be pretty excited, though. Yeah. I think presented with the two versions of Crazy Six and what we're trying to do with It's All in the Game, it is like a night and day difference. You know, we cast it in all, all Asian cast, and the way we set it up was we chose 10 different scenes to record, um, whether or not they're gonna be used in the show. And they're all in sequential order. 
And we ended on a really personal scene, which I believe is in episode three, where Billy and Anna are in a police station and Anna leaves Billy. And that's pretty much the end of the film. And I remember those two actors were like blown away by Galen's writing. And they were just like, we never get to read for parts like this, especially with so much depth to these kinds of characters and, and to put them on the main roster. They're the stars of the show. That was something that was just kind of beautiful to feel that the actors were just so into it. I fought hard. I lost. We can put together another game plan. I'm tired. Look, I'm gonna get back out there. Don't try to save me. Billy, save yourself. What are you trying to say, huh, Anne? You're going to get back into the life I know what I am, okay? She gets up. I got to get going. I want to see my little girl. I'll go with you. She walks to the door, but has a hard time with the doorknob until it finally opens. No. No. Stay clean. I'm proud of you. I love you. She has her back to him. Tears stream down her face as she mouths to herself. I love you too. Can you go a little deeper into why you think the actors were so affected and moved by their scene? It's just, um, no, yeah, it's go just for it. like it's so tragic. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I when I was working with um, the actress who played Anna, and I don't, I had never articulated this way, but then after I said it, then I never like stopped thinking about it. It was like this idea that there's like a love triangle, and it's like. Billy, Anna, and the drugs. And it's like that the drugs are always there. And the the actress, I was like, God, that's so tragic. I was like, oh, yeah, it is really tragic. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's such a hard story. It's so hard because it's like, I think everyone's experienced that in some way in their lives, right? Where it's like a relationship where there is still love and yet there are all of these other reasons that it just can't be, you know? And I, I think that was, that felt so real. And like our first instincts when we read It's on the Game, it felt like an action movie, but like just like an action movie that existed back in the 90s and 80s, like the Die Hards or anything like that. And when we got to scenes like the final sort of Anna goodbye to Billy because she's choosing the drugs. It's like in those scenes where you kind of realize that Galen was actually, he was almost using like the action genre to really actually speak to something a lot more true. And I think the actors could feel that. Maya and James, last round of questions. Y'all have been working on this show for over two years, and 
we all know that once you put something out in the world, it is no longer in your control. You don't know how it's going to be received. I wanted to hear from both of you what you wanted people to take away from the story in Magnificent Jerk. I feel like this whole process, I've learned a lot from my uncle. And I actually think, like, learning his story has been really helpful in, like, teaching me how to take this podcast itself, like— from its, like, first idea all the way to completion. My uncle taught me Sachin, you know? He taught me how to, like, really believe in something and, like, not to second-guess yourself. And if you know you really want to make something, for me it was the show. For him it was his scripts. Like, you can do it. Like, no matter what, like, even if you don't have a background in – the thing you're trying to do, even if, like, everyone is telling you the odds are against you. I just always felt very inspired by Galen and, like, the fact that he was able to take the life he lived and turn it into something else and turn it into something creative. So I hope that when people listen to this that they're inspired to do that, too, in their own lives. And uh, I just want to add to that. I think part of the reason I was so excited to be a part of this podcast and have Maya tell the story was because Galen felt like this strangely like an unsung hero and someone that um, history forgot. And I just wanted people to know more about who he was and the things that he was trying to do in this industry because everything he was going through, it still exists now. And so for me, that was just kind of important to shine a light on it. The other thing, too, was Maya's journey as well. And the thing that struck me was how Maya talks about grief. It's just something I don't normally uh, engage with because it's such a hard topic. But how Maya approached it, especially being in the thick of it all, was something that was very beautiful and very, to me, universal. And that's just something that I hope people take from this. Yeah. Um, Melissa... How about you? What What is something that you want the listeners to take away from this show? Yeah, uh, I think y'all hit upon a lot of the emotional aspects of making a very personal show. And I definitely want uh, the takeaways that y'all said to be listed in mind, if I may piggyback. Uh, so the thing I do want to add is that for me, like James said at the top, I'm very passionate about Asian Americans and Hollywood representation and Hollywood history. And so my hope is that People can hear this show and take in new voices or new faces from people they might not know, like, say, Ron Yuan or even Dante Bosco. Like, everyone knows Dante from Rufio and Zuko, but he's done a lot of other things. And so I hope that this sparks an awareness and an interest in uh, more Asian-American creators and performers. Hell yeah. That's it. Thank you for listening to our final episode of DVD Extras and the final episode of Magnificent Jerk. And thank you to Maya and James for letting me moderate this conversation. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you so much. All right. And with that, Maya, I think I'm going to pass it on back to you. Would you like to do credits for the final episode? One last time. Here it is. Magnificent Jerk is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Our senior producers are James Kim and Eric Menel. 
Our producers are Melissa Akiko Slaughter and Maria Robbins Somerville. Our editors are Darby Maloney and Joel Lovell. Our senior audio engineers are Davy Sumner, Marina Pais, and Pedro Alvira. Our assistant audio engineers are Jade Brooks and Sharon Bardales. Additional engineering by Javier Cruces and Jason Richards. Original music by Hannes Brown and Matthew Wong. Pineapple's head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Production assistance from Grace Chen, Himia Freeman, Gabe Kawugale, Liz O'Malley, and Kristen Torres. Our cover art is by Joan Wong. Language and translation help from Judy Lay. It's All in the Game was written by Galen Ewan. The fiction in this episode is performed by Jesse Kwai, Patrick Ip, Carolyn Ken, Kit Cow, and Grace Lynn. Special thanks to Justin DeClue, Will Choi, Phil Yu, and Nancy Wang Yuan. James Kim and I are executive producers. The executive producers from Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>